previously on Labrador Leadership. Keeping the toxic behaviors to a minimum. So what's one that what's one that you think of right away? Really taking everything too personally and being defensive. That's like the first that's the first thing that makes me not trust a person. This is Alex Massa and you're listening to the Labrador Leadership Podcast with Bob Nolly. Yes, they are. Live from the RVA, this is the Labrador Leadership Podcast with Dr. Bob Nolly. The program that brings you the leadership skills that can make you the most authentic, approachable leader for the sake of your business, your team, and for you. Now, here's Bob. Ladies and gentlemen, how are you? If you got any Tylenol close by, any Advil, go take two because today, ladies and gents, today there are two doctors in the house. Two doctors in the house. My guest today is just one of the finest gentlemen I've had the opportunity to meet in recent years. <clears throat> he has a great career. He, he well, let's start with a PhD in mathematics, but that's not the important point for us here. He has talked to some of the biggest names and worked with some of the biggest corporations in in the world. And his accomplishments are great. And I, I think he has a little bit of a secret in his background as well. I met him, though, when he was starting to write and produce and host a top-rated podcast called Life Unsettled, all about a new path and a better future. Thomas O'Grady, welcome to the program. Uh, thank you very much, Bob. I'm almost afraid to talk after that great introduction. <laughs> That's very generous. You have been at some of the biggest named corporations. I'm talking about GM and and Chase. And, you know, the GM, the automotive industry, is a little black hole in the knowledge base for me. Were, were you a car guy? How did you get there? Actually, I was not a car guy at all. Didn't really care about cars other than they took me from point A to point B, and I wanted them to be reliable. You and the rest that of America just it. like that. That's good. Yeah. And what actually happened for me was... Uh, I was graduating from Berkeley with my PhD in mathematical and statistical economics. I went on the, I was about to go on the tour. I would not have gone to General Motors. I went to the research labs. I wouldn't have gone there except that they sent me something at a time where I was just thinking and entertaining the idea. Maybe instead of academics, I might consider the private sector. So I figured, okay, I'll try a, just a, you know, interview there. It's a practice interview. It'll be one of my first. Well, they sent me back an offer. They called me, said, we're sending an offer. You should receive it in a couple of days. I got the offer. So what I first did was I ran down to the bookstore and looked at, you know, I was just getting out of school. So I looked up, how do I negotiate? What do I do? What do I ask for? How do I set the stage, et cetera? I get the offer. There was nothing to do. They, were, they offered me literally unlimited opportunity. Double the salary of anybody else getting out of Berkeley that year. They offered me a assistance in the, in the research that is a program to help me with all my research. They gave me unlimited computer support. I called a friend of mine in the Department of Energy and he said that they were second, their computer system was second only to the Pentagon. They gave my wife a career, not just a job, but a career. Then the best thing of all, was, what do you expect me to do? Well, they put in writing that I could do whatever I wanted to. So here I could do whatever I wanted to, research whatever I wanted to, unlimited support, double the salary. It was not a hard decision. Yeah, that's the kind of offer you want to get in the mail. <laughs> yeah, 
exactly. And that was straight out of uh, straight out of Berkeley after you finished your doctoral work there, right? Yes, exactly. And you got into the banking world as well, you because you ended up at Chase at some point in the automotive division. Right. Actually, what happened was uh, I was being pursued by a few companies. There was somebody that knew me that had left uh, as second to the chief economist at General Motors, and he had gone to DuPont. He pursued me heavily. There were a couple other people pursuing me, and Chase came along and offered me this position to head that automotive area, and that seemed like a really nice, interesting transition. It was not as much fun as I would, had hoped it would be, partly because they were constantly wonder, wondering whether they were going to close down, what they were going to do, et cetera. And they actually had decided that um, they would sell the whole thing, all the industry divisions as for assets only. Now, just before that happened, I was told never to consider making my division profitable. They said, it's just a loss leader. There's been so many bright, wonderful people ahead of you. Nobody has made it profitable. The funny part of it is actually the president shouted at me in the hallway one time. I never want to hear you say that again, da, 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 da. Well, 14 months after I started, it became profitable. <laughs> applause, applause. Well, well why would, would they say that? Well, the interesting thing is I would expect applause. What happened was, they were mad at me, and I was warned by the guy who was the head of the insurance area, insurance group. He called me up and said, don't say anything, don't cheer, don't high-five, don't do anything because they are furious because you've embarrassed them. Oh. That I find remarkable. Oh. I mean, this is an example, for example, that you, in your podcast, the idea of leadership. Leadership, I mean, when I see something that I'm wrong and somebody else did something that makes things better, I turn around and say, wow, I am so glad I was found out to be wrong by this. And here's what happened. And here's what we're going to do as a result of it. You know, we mentioned just now when you talked about getting the offer from them coming out of, of uh, Berkeley. And uh, you said they were just going to send you an offer and you got it. And it was, it was, it was perfect. But I, I don't want that depicted as something that just kind of fell out of the sky into your lap. Because I am sure there was a lot a lot of hard work behind that that put oh, yeah, you in the position to catch it when, when it came to you. Oh, yeah. I didn't get any of the things that I got because of, uh, you know, because they just fall out of the sky. I, uh, before that, I've had a whole series of successes and a lot of things. In, and they had me in for the interview and everything. And so and had me make a presentation, the whole bit, questioned me and all. I had uh, but I was on a series of tours because I was being interviewed all over the nation. Well, that's good stuff. I uh, I know in the consulting world, you've uh, you've put your lips to the ear some of the biggest names we could come up with in in the late twentieth century, like Lee Iacocca and Alan Greenspan at the Federal Reserve. Uh, among those two gentlemen, or, or anyone else you could share, is there is there one person that you really that just generated your utmost respect and. Uh, and you left your work with them feeling that's, that's the kind of guy I want to be. Well, I'm always sort of my own person. I don't really do that. But there is a lot of people that I would put respect on of the people. Well, certainly Lee Iacocca, really, really special. And what I have often quoted very often was I was told when I was first meeting him that oh, he's really in extremely bad mood. And he was always noted for blowing up, et cetera. And 
he had had two meetings, one with the executive committee, one with, I think, the product group or product committee. And after, and those meetings, he had really some horrible things happen. He was shouting at them, et cetera. So they said, just, you know, let's just do the five-minute intro, et cetera. We'll meet, follow up some of the time. He also had two meetings after me and it had, had to catch a plane at 6.30. This was in the afternoon at 6.30 p.m. I didn't get in to see him until five o'clock. At five o'clock, I walked in the door. We started to chat just with the introduction. I told him, look, if this is the way I do things, and I told him how I'm basically straightforward. I'll tell you exactly what I think. And you'll either like it and get something out of it, not like it, throw me out the door, or most likely there'll be something there to add to your information and knowledge and we'll both be better off. He stood up, leaned across this humongous desk that he had, put his hand out to shake my hand and said, it's about time to hear somebody tell me what they think rather than what they think I want to hear. It's amazing somebody like him could have been surrounded with yes men in the way that he apparently was. Well, that's actually the second person I ran into like that. My both sort of boss's boss, which really was perceived as my boss because that's who I really directly, directly connected with an executive director at General Motors, uh, Gene Steiniger, he used to say the same thing to me over and over again many times. He said, gee, I've been here for 32 years at General Motors, and it's about time I finally get somebody that will tell me what they think, rather than, you know, exact same words, rather than what I, they think I want to hear. And I find every place I go, that's where people have. People in high positions are always being massaged. If you take a look at the bad decisions that actors, actresses, and some executives, but certainly, and politicians, some of the bad decisions may not be by the politicians themselves, but by their, all their cadre of yes people. You know, at, the, at this point in the market, in this point in the economic cycle, organizations have been getting flatter, and they've been doing so for a couple of decades at this point. So now the folks at the top they can't just have the visionary strategic skills. They have to know marketing. They have to know finance. They have to know team building. They have to know all of these things. And it, they have to have blind spots somewhere. It, it's unfair for the stakeholders, the board of directors, to expect them to be a fully functional CEO in all areas at this stage of the game. Uh, have you found that to be true? I find it to be true, but I want to change what your basic premise is because you said in this stage of the cycle, I don't believe that we are in a business cycle right now. I think we're in a really a restructuring and I'm actually going to do a podcast episode on that. I promised it a couple of weeks ago that I do it very soon. And so I am going to turn it out in the next couple of weeks. And it's really about this new economy that we have in a very different economy. I almost hesitate when I say new economy because people seem to think that that means some explicit something thing. different yeah yeah but the structure has changed to the economy and it is very very different than what it was and people have to adjust and companies and businesses are having to adjust to that and some people are getting mad at the businesses but it's not the business's fault it's what has happened that has transformed the country and what are some of those things? A uh, little bit too much to get into right now because I also want to do the 
the basis for them, et cetera. But some of them are the fact that, well, you know, unemployment and uh, employment are very differently and very differently defined than they are. There are a lot of people out there that are saying that, oh, the economy is just slowly growing at this pace, much slower than at other recoveries. This isn't really a recovery. Uh, if you take a look back at every single recovery there has ever been, as soon as people get the opportunity, business expands at like a skyrocket, not this meandering along of muddling through that really is only being held up by some of the false things that are being done, such as the infusion of capital by the Fed into the economy, the buying of debt, the keeping the interest rates so low that people are going along. I mean, you think about it. Basically, money is at close to zero interest rate and people are not investing. I, yeah, I don't even understand that concept. When we have interest rates, you know, near zero, that kind of infers to me that money's lying there on the street for the picking up, if you will. It is. financial and, institutions, but they can't seem to get it. Well, it is. And what's happening is it's there, it's lying on the street for... But companies have to feel that there's a benefit for them to invest and to get that business that they're going to go into or expand. And they don't feel that. And why don't they feel that? Because the economy really isn't there. There's unemployment numbers and employment numbers that we have and labor force petition, participation rates. They're horrible. This thing about 5.3%, that's a travesty. That's not the real unemployment rate by any mean, by any of the means that we measured earlier. We now have people that are working much less. I mean, on my podcast, sometimes I explain. We've got people that are having to work under 30 hours. Why? Because that's way, the only way that the company can afford to really expand. So it's cutting people's hours back. It's also replacing older workers by younger, work, younger workers, all to save money and conserve. And that's where some of the growth is coming about. Thomas O'Grady of Life Unsettled here. Uh, you know, we just had a couple of episodes uh, here on Labrador Leadership uh, surrounding the idea that a, uh, a very large company here in the East just dropped 1,600 people on the street in the Richmond area. And lots of them haven't been in the market for 20 years, let's just say. And I'm getting a lot of phone calls. There's a lot of struggle and angst on the street now. And I think it's a result of actions just as you've indicated here. Absolutely. And that's it. Um, and you can't blame the businesses. The rules have been changed and they're playing based on the rules, the new rules. And the new rules are such that you really need to get away from some of the other employees, drop them off in the street, as you put, and substitute either cheaper waiver or less hours so that you. Now, most growth is by smaller firms. And because most growth is by smaller firms, you have that the problem of these firms can't afford to get into, get caught up in um, Obamacare. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh, you know, all, your entire history here working with these great big firms, these large organizations, and the, and the people that you've gotten to know and had the year of, uh, you say you've still always been an entrepreneur at heart. Where did that come from? Actually, it's funny. I, I don't know exactly where it came from, but I always enjoyed it. 
when I was a little kid, this is just a funny story I'll share with everybody. Uh, it's good that I can't see them otherwise in my <laughs> chair. But when, when I was very young, uh, just starting junior high school, and I, I used to go down, drive, ride my bike down to this mega discount store and buy these huge packs of gum. You know, single stick gum. You know, I don't remember how many there were, but there's a ton of them. Anyway, so I'd bring them to school, stuff my pockets with them, and I'd sell them to kids at six times what I paid for them. And then, um, and, and it had an interesting economic or market re reaction to me because here I would give them this, you know, sell them this. And then the teacher, of course, would catch them, take it away from them or make them throw it out. And then they'd come by and buy some more. So it was kind of like I was a gum dealer, which is legal. It's not, I wasn't selling crack or marijuana or I was selling gum. <laughs> That's great. I can imagine, uh, I can imagine perhaps uh, convenience store owners putting a cap on purchases <laughs> because yeah. people oh. were coming in buying it by the case daily. Oh, except that it wasn't uh, convenience stores. It was, there was something that was like a, a big uh, don't lots for sale type store. It was a huge building store, and they sold it in huge packages. So, but then also when I was twelve years of age, I was living on Long Island at the time. I used to enjoy, and this is probably strange or ILP or strange to most folks for this, but I used to like to take the train in on Saturday morning into New York City. And I would wander around. Now, lots of people would like to do that. But what I would do is I would wander into all of these little shops. And I just found very interesting and entertaining watching the business owners of these little shops. Everything from how they interacted with the customers and displayed, plus how they walked around and checked on customers who were, you know, wandering around their store, how they might offer to help, or when there would be some group of three or four kids walk in, how they'd sort of follow them and what do you want, you know, because they were afraid of theft. But it was all that was interesting is how they ran the business. And that's great. And that's the advice, you know, that people are reading about in in books like Michael O'Neill's Sexy Six and A Rich Dad Poor Dad, Robert Kiyosaki talks about that all the time, just sitting there watching how small shop owners do business. That's right. And I didn't, uh, you know, I hadn't read any of those. That was just something that I like to do. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's making a comeback, so to speak. So all of the things you list here, right here on the, on the page and for your podcast, uh, you mentioned that you've done a little uh, work in the intelligence community. And, uh, you know, you certainly can't say more than you, you can, but it's here on your webpage. But I have to ask, how, how did that come to you? Did somebody come up to you in a cafe and slide you an envelope or just, just how does that happen? Well, actually, that, was, that came in the service, although somebody many years later, and this is the first time on a broadcast, uh, many, many years later, somebody did come up to me and sit beside me and slide me something and hand me a card and said, you know, come and see me anytime. Um, I don't want to go into more detail. No, absolutely that. not. No. Um, but. I also was pursued afterwards because when I first did the intelligence and I broke Russian codes, I was actually ended up in a situation where I was in charge of two-thirds of all Soviet intelligence. And then several years later, while I was uh, – after I had left the service, and I, the service where I was, it was called the Army Security Agency, but it reported to NSA. And um, 
I got a letter from NSA. They wanted to, and they just wanted to know what my requirements, they already had approved me. And then several years later, right after I'd gotten to uh, Berkeley, they sent me another one. But this time, instead of it for being for Russian, it was for Japanese. And that took me a little bit by surprise because I had never taken any Japanese courses or structured things, et cetera. So they had to know, and I literally could think and dream of Japanese, but for them to understand and know that and to have approved of me means that they, somebody must have listened to me or multiple people must have listened to me or sat next to me or done something over time. Well, that's, that's, that's exciting work, I'm sure. I, I just, you know, it just is something we only see the tip of the iceberg in through the media and film and the like. So that, that must have been exciting work. So now to the present, though. Uh, what brought you to the doorway of Life Unsettled? Well, actually, it was it's sort of a backdoor in a sense. What happened was I was doing a lot of work on my own saying, gee, you know, what's going on? What do you do as you get older? Because I'm in the baby boom. What do you do now for the next whatever years? And how do you make sure you have plenty of security until you decide to go on to another realm or whatever? Um, so... What happened was, I, as I was doing this, I was saying, gee, you know, and I started to listen to some other folks, et cetera. I said, gee, I should just share this. And that's really how it all started. I said, gee, I ought to share this because I was talking to other people. And some of it came about because I was sharing parts of it here and there on everything when I would talk to people, you know, in airports, et cetera. So it just became a natural extension. That's why I said it went backwards out the back door because it was something I was doing for myself, which is also why I have so much desire in it and so much love in the area. I remember working with you when you were coming up with the development of the concept for the show. And when you when you came up with the logo, not necessarily the brand, of course, but the logo itself, that was so impactful to uh, to me as to just what the concept of the show could mean and what, having gone through situations like that to so many people, it's just you, I'm sure struck have struck a chord with, with so many people there and it's, it's a great show and, and hugely successful. So congratulations on that. Yeah. It's actually interesting because what happens in the concept and the idea that most people don't understand now something, I'm going to quote something from Dave Ramsey, 60, I'm sorry. Uh, the people who are 65 years of age, 97% of those 65-year-old people cannot write a check for $600. Ouch. 97%. Now, when you think about that, yeah, somebody said, oh, I can't believe that. They're not talking about getting a credit card out and borrowing the money or having overdraft or something. They're talking about they have cash in the bank that they could just write a check for $600. 97% can't do that. Wow. Now, additionally, when people are over 65, the average male makes a, just around a little over $20,000 a year. The average female, a little under 16, so 15000 and change. Do you want to live on that? How can you? You can't. So this... I mean, that's the poverty line. Isn't that the poverty line? I ask oh, you as way an below the poverty line, oh, actually. Sure. And on top of that, now, every time, and, and your audience should take note of this, anytime they go into a 
um, let's say a McDonald's or whatever, uh, or a Dunkin' Donuts, whatever, at about nine in the morning, every once in a while when they do at that time, they're going to probably see some little group of guys hanging around together, older guys that are just chatting, et cetera. And only a couple of them will have coffee. Now, the coffee only costs a dollar. That's their leisure time activity, getting together, four to seven of them, just chatting, et cetera, talking about the same things they probably talked about yesterday or the day before. But what else are they going to do? Now, the only reason you're not seeing the women there because the women more have a more much greater propensity to, say, be at each other's house. Over yeah, I see those guys all the time. I haven't That's been invited it. over yet, but I see them all the time. <laughs> be, yeah, well, I'll be, somewhat be glad you're not invited over. But also, think of it. You see those guys all the time. That is their life over 65. That's I don't very want true. that. And that's what I'm trying to help other people fight against. So if you and I were talking to, and I'll ask you, this is a question I ask many of our guests, if you could get your hands on a freshly minted MBA today coming out into the world, heading into his first corporate assignment, what's your advice to him or her? Well, the first minted M- MBA, that it's kind of interesting because they have a, a little bit of a uh, problem because they're trying to look like they're much more successful than they are at the same time they should be putting money aside as if they're not successful because if they just put a little bit aside their entire life by the time they're 65 they will have a lot of money yeah time for a little lesson on future value here absolutely is is that interesting there was an interesting one where there was a uh, interview of somebody who had saved up. He was just a little over 50. He had $2.25 million in the bank. Well, in stocks, bonds, et cetera, in his uh, accounts. And what was he? He was actually, his job, he mowed lawns. That's what he did. He just mowed lawns. Obviously, he worked very hard at it, but also only worked at it for about five and a half to six months a year. But he was putting that money aside as much as he could on an ongoing basis. Here's a little over 50 years of age and he's all set. That's outstanding. Life Unsettles, Dr. Thomas O'Grady, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. If folks are looking to reach out to you, where can they find you? Well, if they just go to the website, Life Unsettled, they can leave a voice message. They can also send me an email. Uh, you could also send, send me an email, thomas at lifeunsettled.com. There's his email address. Well, thank you so much for that, sir. Uh, okay, we will see you next time, Thomas. Thank you very much, Bob. Thanks for listening to the Labrador Leadership Podcast. For the sake of all the special people in your life that deserve you to be the best leader you can be. Connect with us on our website at labradorleadership.com, on Facebook at Labrador Leadership, and on Twitter at Lab Leadership. Now, here's a final thought from Bob. Many, many heartfelt thanks to Thomas O'Grady for being on the show today. That was a lot, a lot to think about and consider. Take care of one another. We'll see you next time.